Well, everybody, if you don't remember uh, Christian, Christian led worship here for a long time. He's our worship director. Would you give him a round of applause and just thank him for being back? And if you would, go ahead and grab a Bible and open up to Mark chapter 2. Mark chapter 2. In 1886, Confederate colonel, morphine addict, John Smith Pemberton introduced to the world for the very first time Coca-Cola. Do you know that was his history? I didn't. Kind of changes the way you drink it. Now, originally, he introduced it to the world because he wanted a substitute for morphine, a way to get similar kinds of effects, but without the damage of morphine. It was made from cocoa leaves and cola nuts. And it was originally advertised as a nerve tonic, a stimulant because it had caffeine in it, and a remedy for headaches. Now, the beverage was so popular that it spread all throughout the United States. And during Prohibition, sugar was added to it because people believed that it was a perfect temperance beverage in lieu of alcohol, which I think is very funny if you live in Utah, and it still is that. <laughs> Firing shots. <laughs> then... As the beverage continued to expand, you continued to have products that were kind of removed and replaced. And in 1982, the Coca-Cola company rolled out for the very first time a diet version of the soda, which meant that it was without sugar and was supposedly without calories. So the thing that made Coca-Cola taste good had actually been removed. And then in 1983, a caffeine-free version of Diet Coke was rolled out. And so all of a sudden, a few whatever years later, a beverage that started with caffeine, sugar, lost all of those things and became basically a nothing beverage. Basically a beverage that had nothing in it. This is an idea when you talk about something like this happening, this kind of transformation happening. Diet Coke represents, or diet caffeine-free Coke represents what you could call a signifier. It represents something, but as you actually push into what the soda is, there is literally nothing there. There's no caffeine as a stimulant. There's no medicinal properties to it. And there's not even sugar in it, so it doesn't taste good at all. <laughs> if you drink Diet Coke, it doesn't taste good. Right? There is nothing left in the beverage of what was originally there. That's what happens when an idea or a product or a notion loses its substance. It becomes a signifier. It represents something like a banner that we wave, but as you push into it, there's nothing actually there. Lots of things do this. If you remember Apple, Apple used to advertise as a computer company for creative and unique people, but now there is 1.3 billion Apple devices in the world. It still advertises like it is for unique people, but every one of us owns an Apple device, so that means something about whether we're unique or not. Right? The name is still there. It still advertises like it's for creatives. It still advertises like it's for unique people. But if you push into the idea, you find that there is no substance to the idea. Now, this is funny when it happens in marketing, but it also happens in some of our biggest, most important beliefs. 
I don't know if you remember, but when Obama ran, one of his slogans was, change you can believe in. Now, when he was a community organizer on the ground in Chicago, that belief, that statement actually had some kind of substance to it. People gathered around him, knew what change meant. But as soon as you blew that to a national campaign, by virtue of it being a political slogan, it lost whatever substance it had. Change you can believe in, change for people who worked in the inner city of Chicago, the same change that people who were working in the Midwest had, the same change that people who were stockbrokers in New York had. Those things lose substance as soon as it goes to that kind of level. That's always true of political slogans. Happens in religious circles. How often does something like a Bible become something we don't actually read at all, we don't engage in at all, there's no substance to our belief in the Bible, but it does become a banner that we wave in order to know who's on our team and who's not on our team, right? It becomes a signifier. It's something we say we believe in. It's some banner that we wave. It's some idea that we hold to, but there's no substance to it, no practice within it doesn't do anything in our actual lives. It's a banner or a signifier, some belief, but it is extracted from practices and from place and from people. What is exactly what we see happening in the Gospel of Mark? The same thing that we see happening all around Jesus's life as he's telling stories and as he's reinterpreting scripture and as he's bringing his kingdom so often what you find happening is that Jesus is bringing this thing and it bumps against beliefs that have been extracted from practice or from people or from places. And on the one hand, if you know the story of Israel, it's hard to blame them for really anything. By the time that Jesus shows up, Israel has been enslaved or they have been oppressed by other conquering nations for some 400 years. So their identity as a people has been under threat for 400 years. They've lived under Babylon, they've lived under Persia, they've lived under Greece, they've lived under Rome. And so they fear that they're going to lose the thing that made them significant. They're given something beautiful thousands of years ago, and they as a people are called to extend that thing throughout history, throughout their families to one generation to the next generation to hold on to it as, as a people group in the real of their existence. And they're worried that as they've been conquered and as they've been threatened, that they're going to lose the thing that makes them distinct. That is a natural fear. But the United States has only been around for 243 years. Christianity in the United States has done well since basically the 60s. And you can already see how much it like anxiety it produces in Christian institutions as they feel like, oh, we're losing what makes us distinct. So imagine having to exist in that for 400 years. But in the process of trying to hold on to distinctiveness, their beliefs have lost their substance. And in Mark chapter 2, we get a bunch of examples that will show up again and again in the life of Jesus. And so if you look at verse 23 and 24, you have a moment where Jesus and his disciples are, are doing something on the Sabbath. And the Pharisees see that they're like picking grain and they're eating it. And they say, one Sabbath, he, Jesus, was going through the grain fields. And as they made their way through the grain fields, his disciples began to pick plucks of head of grain so they could eat them. And the Pharisees were saying to him, look, why are you doing something that is unlawful on the Sabbath? They're walking through a grain field, picking grain. And the Pharisees say, why are you doing something that is unlawful? The Sabbath 
was a, a, a law that was instituted formally after the people of Israel leave Egypt. It was a way for them to collectively say, no, we will never again be slaves defined by our economic output. That we will never again be defined by false gods, that we will never again be defined by idols who will measure us and how valuable our output is. We will never again, instead we will be a people who trust God, who lean into him as our rescuer, as our form of identity, and as our trust. See, that is a belief that has practice to it. It's grounded in the people's lives, in their story, in their history, in their place. It does something in them. It leads to freedom and life. But again, in this moment, all of a sudden it's extracted from practice and it becomes like a thing that they're supposed to do. What matters is actually whether or not they're keeping the Sabbath, not what the Sabbath is doing in their life. The same thing happens again in the verse just above that with fasting. For Jesus, fasting is a way to find freedom and trust in who God is. But in this moment, Jesus and his disciples are being judged and excluded for not fasting. And like that caffeine-free Diet Coke, the belief has been extracted from the practice. And what started as something that was good and right and beautiful has been stripped and empty. And all they are left with is an ideology which is always what happens when you have a belief and you remove practice from it. All you're left with is some kind of empty ideology, a banner that we wave, a thing we do, not because of what it does, but because of what it is. So, for example, I grew up in a church tradition that was really against alcohol. As I got older, I didn't understand why. I never understood the, the, the context, the history from it. And so I began to push in, like, why was this a thing that we were against? And if you trace my church's tradition back to the temperance movement, you actually begin to understand why. In the 19th century, alcoholism was rampant across England and English prairies. Mostly women, who were the leaders of the temperance movement, watched this thing destroy people's lives. And they were like, okay, how do we enter into other people's lives, name something that is destructive, and help work with them to find healing and flourishing and health? It did not begin as a political movement that leads to prohibition. It begins as like a, a church movement of us going into a neighborhood, going into people's lives and saying, okay, what does it look like to lead to life and to freedom and to flourishing? But over time, there was a, a loss of practice, a loss of people, a loss of place. And all of a sudden, temperance stopped being about freedom, and it started being about right and wrong. It started about being who is in and who is out. It started being about what kind of church you attended and what those other people in that church were doing. This is always what happens when a belief loses its practice. It stops moving us towards other people and it starts moving us away from them. And that's gonna be the worst moment in Mark chapter two. If you look at verse 13, Jesus calls a tax collector to be his follower. And when the Pharisees see it, it says, and the scribes and the Pharisees, when they saw this, that he was eating with sinners and tax collectors, they said to his disciples, why does he eat with sinners and tax collectors? The subtext is that they believe in order to preserve their distinctiveness, you actually have to stay away from people. That if you want to 
hold on to what made you special, if you want to hold on to what made you unique, if you want to hold on to what it means to be the people of Jesus or the people of God, you actually have to be distinctive, stay away from those people. And that is a crazy thing to think if you know the story of Israel. They literally are called to be God's people in order to be a blessing to the world around them. When Abram enters into covenant relationship with God, it is dependent upon you will be a blessing to the world. The reason that you have distinct practices, the reason that you do the Sabbath, the reason you gather on the table in a certain way, the reason you practice certain kinds of laws, the reason you don't have a standing army, all of that for ancient Israel is supposed to be an invitational people showing the world what it looks like to live in relationship with God. But over time, all of a sudden, that belief got extracted from its practice, and it wasn't about moving towards other people. It was simply about being distinctive and separate. See, without practice or substance, all we have is a banner, a way to say who is in and a way to say who is out. It's about defining ourselves against. I think we're all too familiar with this cycle in our own lives. I think if we look around, our politics feel empty because they are literally empty banners that we wave. But it, sadly, it is so true of our churches. Where the things that we do or the beliefs that we hold feel different and unique and extracted from practice. And so things like the Bible stop being about leading us into being the people of God and they become a way to cudgel people in judgment. The church becomes an idea and not a movement of people practicing the way of God together. And the result, when our beliefs are extracted from practice, is we get an empty church or an empty people or empty beliefs. There's nothing of substance behind them. And as you follow the story of Jesus, you see over and over again that he is uninterested and even disgusted by this kind of empty religion. He'll refer to the Pharisees as whitewashed tombs. They're empty on the inside, though they are clean on the outside. There's nothing of substance underneath it. He'll say that they are like cups that have been cleaned on the outside, but they remain dirty on the inside. There's a, there's a fundamental emptiness to that kind of religion. But for Jesus, what he's about doing in Mark is not destroying the thing that they believe. He says, I'm not here to destroy the law. I'm actually here to fulfill it, to add substance to it. To return it to its practice, to return it to people. And so we see this, like as Jesus is living his life and as he is doing his ministry, you see this perfect expression of God's way lived out. Over and over again, he rejects empty religion and shows us the fullness of of faith. So when the Pharisees say that Sabbath, it's unlawful to do what they're doing on the Sabbath, he grounds it back in people and says that Sabbath is for people. When they complain about fasting, he shows them it only makes sense as a practice that is connected to God. And when the Pharisees complain about Jesus eating with Levi, he responds, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick do. I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. Meaning for Jesus, you cannot separate his teachings or his way or his mission from the people that he came to. You cannot separate his belief from his practice because Jesus did not come to bring us a new belief system, a new worldview, a new ideology, but instead a new reality that we are invited to live into. And 
new reality that we are called to exist in. Or you could use a more biblical faith or biblical word than reality and say that Jesus called to bring us faith. And faith, I feel like, is one of those words, maybe like one of the top words that gets extracted from practice. And so if we were to define faith, I think actually a lot of us would define it as like, oh, it is believing. It's like a thing that you, you believe something, and that is what faith looks like. But faith, according to Scripture, is an empty belief. If you look at Hebrews 11.1, and the writer of Hebrews describes faith this, it says, now faith is the substance of things hoped for. The evidence of things unseen. That there is a substance to faith, a practice to belief, and that's what faith is. One, I think, theologian says it really helpfully. He says, instead of speaking, speaking of belief or trust in Jesus when talking about faith, we should speak instead of sworn fidelity or embodied loyalty to the cosmic king of the universe. Jesus came to invite us into faith, into the fullness of faith, into a new reality. An embodied loyalty to, to Jesus who is our king. Not some empty ideology, but belief and practice which exists into a new kind of way of being. Right? As we see with the Pharisees, if you remove one of those things, if you remove practice from belief, all you get is some kind of empty ideology. But if you add practice, we get the substance of our faith. And just in case we don't understand what that means, the writer of this story begins this whole section of Scripture with, with an illustration of all of it in Mark chapter in 2, verse 1. He's in this moment, we get to see both what that means for who Jesus is and what it means for who his people are. So if you look at verse 1, it says, And when he turned to Capernaum, after some days, it was reported that he, Jesus, was at home. And many were gathered together so that there was no room for anyone else, not even at the door, and he was preaching the word to them. And they came, bringing a paralytic carried by four men. And when they could not get near him because of the crowd, they removed the roof above him. And when they had made an opening, they let down the bed on which the paralytic lay. And when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, son, your sins are forgiven. Now, some of the scribes were sitting there questioning in their hearts, why does this man speak like that? He is blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? All throughout scripture, Pharisees and scribes, they're people who are, well, technically, they're people like me. They're pastors, they're people who work in the community. They're highly educated. They are interpreters of the law. They know all of the right beliefs. They have the right worldview. They know how to check the boxes in terms of, do you believe this thing? Do you know these truths? Have you defined this kind of system? But they are constantly contrasted to the people like this man's friends who in love and trust recklessly move their friend towards God's. In this conversation, there's no wrestling with a theology of healing or sin, though having theological conversations is important, but it is unimportant to have those conversations if they are not worked out in love, on the ground, in people's lives. So while the Pharisees and the scribes are debating about whether this is the right thing to do or whether this is the wrong thing to do, you have these four men who recklessly extend their friend towards God, live out their loyalty to Jesus and practice, and, and practice this, this way of faith in that moment. And Jesus says, oh, that's what it looks like to be my people. 
That's what it looks like to be a people of faith. It's to be those who recklessly extend others towards him. This is what it means to be embodying loyalty. And so to that moment, Jesus says, your sins are forgiven. And if you were in that moment, like in that room listening to that, every red flag would have gone up as soon as Jesus said, your sins are forgiven. Because again, let's talk about a belief that is so often extracted from practice. Sin, maybe more than any other word, is a way of saying who is in and who is out, who is to be judged and who is not to be judged. But if you read what sin is in Scripture, sin in Scripture is like a a cry to say that there is something wrong and broken. And yes, it is wrong, but it is a moment of saying that there is something broken when it is connected to people's lives. It is a thing to be lamented, a thing to be mourned, a thing to be cried about, a thing that is desperately in need of grace. Sin in Scripture is an extension of God's love towards his people, naming something that needs to be fixed. But as soon as you remove it from that practice, what is it? It's a way of saying who is in and who is out. And so when Jesus says that, when Jesus says your sins are forgiven, every red flag in the room goes up because to the Pharisees and the scribes who have this, like, this extracted belief, saying that your sins are forgiven threatens the distinctiveness of the community. It threatens my tribe. It threatens what makes me unique. It threatens what keeps me in power. It threatens what holds my security. If you were just to let anybody in, it threatens how I understand myself. And so Jesus, knowing what they are thinking, it says immediately, Jesus perceiving in his spirit, they they thus questioned within themselves, said to them, why do you question these things in your heart? Which is easier to say to the paralytic? Your sins are forgiven? Or to say, rise, take up your bed and walk. But that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins, he said to the paralytic, I say to you, rise, pick up your bed and go home. And he rose and immediately picked up his bed and went out before all of them so that they were all amazed and glorified God saying, we never saw anything like this. This is such a baller move. The Pharisees around him are thinking within their own heart, like only God can forgive sins. And basically Jesus is like, totally, you're healed. What do you do with that? In this moment, what Jesus is doing is he is showing us who God is and how God works. The Pharisees are like, yeah, only God can forgive sins. And Jesus is like, you're totally right. Only God can forgive sins so that you know who I am. Let me show you how I work. And then he heals the dude. It is a confirmation of everything that's happened in Mark 2. That's why Mark probably puts it at this moment and then follows it with these other stories of Jesus' ministry to say, like, do you want to understand who God is? Do you want to understand how his people are supposed to work? Look at this moment. You cannot abstract God from his people. He isn't interested in empty ideologies. He is not interested in beliefs that have been extracted from practice. He is not interested in abstractions at all. He is interested in a movement that plays out on the ground in people's lives. It is extended through families, generations, and communities. That is the work that he is doing. He is at work in the real. Sometimes we call that he is incarnate. Jesus in flesh, he is embodied. So in this moment, we're gonna see who Jesus is, who God is, the kind of work that he is doing and what it looks like to be his people, a people who are like him, who likewise embody their loyalty to Jesus, who are incarnate like their king. 
who work out their faith in practice in real lives and real time. All throughout Mark, as we spend the summer here, this theme and this idea will continue to come up again and again and again. And the reason, I think, is that if you are paying attention to the history of Mark, Mark writes this book some 30 years after Jesus' resurrection, approximately. Which means that he's writing right around AD 60 to AD 70. And that is maybe the hardest moment in the life of the early church in terms of things they have to endure after Jesus is gone. Nero is ruling Rome. And right around this time, the Christians are going to be blamed for the fire that is set in Rome. It's one of the first moments that Christians are separated as a distinct kind of religious community from Jewish community members, and then they begin to get persecuted by both. Around this time, Peter and Paul are both martyred. And around this time, there is a Jewish revolt against Rome, and soon Rome will invade Jerusalem again and destroy the temple. And so it is a chaotic moment. If you're a follower of this way, this distinct kind of unique new movement in Jerusalem, your life is about to get thrown into such total chaos. It is a hostile world to live in, full of ideologies and empty beliefs that have formed the world against itself. And if you're an early Christian in that moment, you have to ask, well, how do I live in this world? What do I do about my life in this space? You could decide that you don't want to believe at all and you just want to hide out, which you saw happen. Maybe the easier answer of all, though, is that you can decide that your faith is actually about making yourself distinct and separate from the world around you. You can say that your beliefs actually aim you against the world around you and that you should separate or you should be against or you should be so different and other than those people that you need to define yourself that way, maybe even in terms of violence or withdrawal. So Mark writes this letter to say, like, hold on, Jesus invited us into a different kind of way. We don't get to to live in the empty politics of Rome. We don't get to live in the empty politics of Israel. We don't get to live in that kind of system. Instead, Jesus invited us into a different kind of revolution altogether. And this letter that he writes to the church in Rome is a way of reminding them who God is and who his people are to be. What does it look like to live in a hostile, divided, violent world of empty religion and empty politics? And the crazy thing about that moment is I think if we're the church today, we have to ask ourselves the exact same question. What does it look like to be the people of God in the world in which we live? I've confessed this so many times, so it probably feels rote, but I feel such an easy temptation to empty politics. It feels so tempting to say like, oh, the way that God is moving in the world is through these traditional mechanisms, or through these, the systems around me, the powers around me. And Mark's gospel is just as much an invitation and challenge to me in the way that I understand the role of the people of God as it is to the ancient Christians who were reading it then. It's a question to us to say, what kind of people are we going to be? Are we a people of empty politics and empty ideologies? Are we a people of faith? It's a question to say, what kind of God do we believe in? An empty God? Or do we believe in a God who took on flesh and embodied himself in the world? 
And are we going to be a people of that king and that kind of God? So, Missy, as we close up, what I want to do is I want to ask a handful of questions. A way of diagnosing those previous questions of what kind of people are we going to be, what kind of God do we want to worship? It's about getting at our own heart to know whether or not our beliefs have been extracted from our practices and are we living out of empty ideology. And so here's the first question. Because when you think about your beliefs, do you get joy, even slight, from the failure, the shame, or the judgment of others who are not a part of your tribe? Maybe that's politically. If you think about the failure of someone politically, do you get joy from that moment? If you think about somebody who's in another denomination and you get joy from watching something go terrible in that moment, maybe it's just a different school district or it's just a different team or it's just a different person at work. Do you find some weird joy in your heart when they fail or when you judge them privately? Missy, if you do, that is a good clue that what you have and what you hold to is not faith, it is ideology. That's empty politics, not the way of Jesus. Because the crazy thing about the way of Jesus is that he's able to hold the tension between the religious Pharisees in love and also the people who he calls sinners or unrighteousness. He can hold the tension in both, hold their humanity in his hand and invite both to the table. Do you get some kind of joy from judging those who are not a part of your tribe? Second, when you think about your beliefs, do they make you feel superior? Man, I, this is one I just have to wrestle with. But I spent a lot of time in school. Part of that is really good. Part of that is really right. I think also part of that is me feeding some ideology in my head that if I can have more nuanced beliefs or better beliefs than other people, that somehow I am better. I am more superior to them. If our faith, the God who condescends, who moves from his throne into poverty and obscurity, if a faith in him leads us to feel superior, there is something wrong I said, do your beliefs make you feel superior? Do your beliefs, or do some of the beliefs that you have, lead to isolation, or are they only practiced in isolation? Now, here's what this can look like. This is tricky. Reading your Bible alone is a really good thing to do. Right? Hear that. Morning devotionals, evening devotionals, so good. Please do not leave here saying, Johnny said reading your Bible is bad. However, if your only engagement with the story of God is isolated, then most likely you are reading yourself, not reading your Bible. The Bible is a document that was given to a community of people to direct the life of a community, to be figured out in community, to be discerned in community, to be extended into community. If we only read it ourselves, we read ourselves into it. And we get a vision of God, a vision of the community, and a vision of beliefs that is more often a reflection of our own already held beliefs than it is of what God is doing. So yes, you need to read it alone, but you have to submit this document into the community to understand what it looks like for God to be moving in this place, to submit your own life to it and the people around you. So if you have a belief that only is practiced in isolation, that's probably an ideology, an empty belief. Community, the church is a community of people. We're called to live this out in community. 
Finally, do you believe that God is only at work in you and your tribe? Man, this is another one that I just so substantially fall prey to. I love judging other Christian tribes. It is a pastime that I am so good at. It is very easy for me to be like, oh yeah, God is uniquely at work at Missio. And I would never say out loud that God's not at work at other communities. But it is very easy for me to be like, God is at work at Missio in a way he is not at work at in other places. God is at work in the things that we're doing uniquely in a way he's not at work in other places. That's an ideology. That's empty. You're telling me that the sovereign God of the universe who created all things and is establishing his purposes in the world is not at work in places I don't understand, doing things that I don't understand, at work in communities that I don't understand, even communities that I often disagree with. You're saying that he's not capable of doing mysterious and profound things that I can't comprehend? If I, if I believe that, I'm not worshiping him, I'm worshiping myself, and I get to dictate and control what God does. And that's an ideology. So, Mr. as you think through those questions... What are you left with in your own heart? Do you have a fullness of faith? Or an empty religion? And here's the thing. I think often we live in empty religion regardless of how often sometimes we have fullness of faith and we can move there. And it is damaging to people around us, but it is also so empty for us to live in empty religion. Like, if you've been there for a long time, I think you feel it. I think it's why people leave the church so often, because it feels like what they were extended was empty. We're not built to live with that. So, Monsieur, the good news is that Jesus is at work actively restoring us to the fullness of faith in him. And so, as we continue worshiping today, Monsieur, what I invite you to do is to bring empty religion, empty ideology, empty politics, and bring it right to this table, which is a moment where our belief and our practice merges together. It's actually a good practice place for us to practice faith, to say, like, what does it look like to be the people of God who are trying to embody the thing that God has called us to, to taste and see the fullness of faith that God is inviting us into so that we might leave this place a taste and sight of the thing that God is inviting the world into. So, Missio, work through those questions, continue to worship, and then bring all of it to the table so that you might meet embodied God and be formed into an embodied people. Amen? Let's pray. Jesus, thank you that you are at work in this world. Not in abstractions, not in weird empty politics or empty beliefs or empty religion, but you are at work forming a a real community embodied around the fullness of you. God, as we gather today and as we sing your songs, we hear your word and we practice at the table, help us to regain a sense of the fullness of faith that you've called us into so that we might leave here a full people, not torn by empty politics of the world around us, but living into the politics of your kingdom. God, as we wrestle with our own emptiness and our own hurts around that, would you make space for us in that too? To bring it to you and to know the fullness of love in you. 
In your name we pray. Amen.